Hi, this is Teemu Arina. I'm the host of the Biohackers podcast and also the creator of Biohackers Summit. And today's guest is uh, well sought after, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who specializes on uh, uh, aging and cancer and nutrition. And uh, she has done extensive research on those. Uh, she's going to be introducing herself in a moment. But uh, she's also going to be speaking at the Biohacker Summit in Helsinki, Finland on the 18th of November. So you may want to check that out. And also, there is another episode that I just recorded with Dr. Tamsin Lewis um, on biomarkers and uh, how to interpret your your blood work. Uh, so she's a medical doctor. You may want to check that episode out as well it's it's uh, i think it's going to be well linked into some of the things that we are looking in here in terms of inflammation and and blood values but in any case so uh welcome to the show Rhonda. thank you and how did you pronounce your name because i completely butchered it when i'm reading it phonetically i think i called you something that's not actually accurate <laughs> so so it's it's temu temu Dem- Demu. Yes. Demu. A lot of a lot of people say Timu. Yeah. And it's fine. I'm I'm used to it. It's, <laughs> it's fine if, if that goes that way. So Temu would be the name. And uh, so you are now the co-founder and CEO of Found My Fitness, and uh, you have a lot of uh, YouTube videos on uh, that go actually very deep into genetics and 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 health benefits of uh, n- n- nutrients. And and you have done extensive research. Uh, you, have P- you have a PhD in biomedical science. So what can you tell us about your background? Well, my background, so I, um, that's correct. I, I do have a PhD in biomedical science. Um, I, I started out wanting to be a marine biologist and uh, travel around, you know, on boats and sort of, you know, surf and look at all the marine life. And somehow I ended up, when I was in college, at University of California in San Diego uh, doing chemistry. Somehow I got into chemistry and organic chemistry, and so I majored in chemistry and biochemistry, and I was doing a lot of, um, you know, synthesizing compounds and drugs and peptides, and I was interested for a while, and I got really bored after a couple of years. Um, while I was still in college, I was doing internships and getting experience and I got really bored. And so I decided once I graduated that I wanted to dive more into biology. So I went and got a job at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences, which is one of the, a very, very prestigious research institute in the United States. And, um, I started working in a lab there that was doing research on aging And they were using these little nematode worms uh, called C. elegans as a research model for aging. These C. elegans have um, many of the same genes, uh, similar versions of genes that humans have. So it's a really good genetic model to study aging. And I remember the first time um, I did an experiment where I manipulated and changed one gene. And this one gene had to do with insulin signaling pathway. Um, insulin growth hormone. So it's the same pathway that humans have. And we got rid of that whole pathway in worms. So there was no insulin, uh, insulin-like growth hormone, so IGF-1. And the worms went from living 15 days, which is their average lifespan, to 30 days by just getting rid of one gene. So it was a 100% increase in lifespan. And I remember thinking wow. to myself, exactly, wow, like, that is amazing that we can genetically change one pathway in this little tiny worm 
And that has such a robust effect on its lifespan. And the, and, the, and the fact that this genetic pathway was something that was conserved in humans was just even more exciting. So at that point, I thought to myself, okay, I, I want to do my graduate work in biology. Hmm. Um, so, so that sort of you know, started my interest in aging and biology. And, um, and uh, then I became interested in cancer, uh, pediatric cancer. So I went to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital where I studied cancer metabolism, uh, the role of mitochondria in cancer. So lots of cancer metabolism. And, um, you know, my PhD was in biomedical science more broadly, but specifically my research focused on cancer metabolism. Right. So, and then as I was, you know, in graduate school, which was, um, six years, <laughs> um, I, at the same time, started this blog where called Found My Fitness, where I just started putting together little concepts of things I was interested in. I became very interested in, uh, as I was studying cancer, metabolism and cancer, I started to realize the importance of prevention in cancer because hmm. cancer is just such an ugly disease. And so then I started to sort of focus on prevention and nutrition and lifestyle factors. And I put together this blog with my husband. And um, then I started to pursue that at the same time, nutrition and, you know, micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, things that are very important for all your enzymes to work properly. Went on to do a postdoc with one of the leaders in the field of micronutrients, Dr. Bruce Ames. And um, Hmm. he was my mentor for some time. And at that time, I continued to do Found My Fitness and uh, even more because he was very supportive of it. And I, I found that I loved communicating my passion with, you know, about science, about health and nutrition um, with people. And so I've just continued doing that with uh, videos I make, as you mentioned, and podcasts and uh, newsletter where I write articles. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I'm still um, a visiting scientist with my my. Mentor, my postgraduate mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames. Um, but I don't, you know, once in a while I, I go back and I'm doing some experiments, but most of the time now I'm doing what I love doing, and that is just communicating, you know, the health behind, you know, the, the science behind health and nutrition to people. Right, so. right. So so there is so many things there that I want to touch on, from mitochondria to to basically things related to longevity and, and nutrition. I recently watched uh, one of the lectures from Dr. Bruce Ames. It was extremely interesting um, about the tri- uh, triad theory. Triage theory. Triage theory. Uh, I want you to explain a little bit on, on, on his work. But he spoke very uh, grandly and uh, respectfully on on your contribution to, to his work in this, that lecture, actually, which was... Uh, which kind of highlights that uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick is not just any postdoctoral student. Um, uh, uh, and uh, looking at your YouTube channel, it's a, it's a wealth of uh, a ton of information on, on different topics. And you have, as you explained in your background, you have pretty wide kind of um, uh, outlook and view on human health. Many researchers, they just dive really deep into one aspect of it. You, you've gone to this kind of looking at these things from very different angles. I would imagine that when you did did studies on IGF-1 and then later on cancer, uh, that those kind of growth hormone-related things are, are kind of interlinked, kind of uh, things that make us 
put more muscle and and, and grow as uh, as athletes, for example, can also be deteriorous uh, to our health uh, if if getting out of hand. So so the time is ticking in a way. Um, uh, so 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 going to 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 those topics, um, especially uh, your work with Dr. Bruce Ames. So. So, so he's he's one of the pioneers in investigating the effects of micronutrients on on human health. So, so what can you can you say about kind of the main discoveries that he's done? Um, I think some of the the main discoveries that that Bruce has contributed in, in terms of the effects of vitamins and minerals on uh, preventative medicine uh, has to do with one uh, folate. So, folate is a very important B vitamin, and Bruce. Bruce found that, uh, so folate is important um, for a couple of reasons. One, you need it to make precursors to make new DNA. So anytime you have a new cell that's being made, for example, in your gut, uh, in your kidney, in your liver, your brain, anytime you make a new cell, you have to make new DNA because, you know, DNA is the fundamental template of, you know, of, our, of our biology. Uh, and in order to make new DNA, you need folate. Um, anytime you damage your 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 cells, so if you damage, uh, for example, your blood vessel and you're repairing damage, well, you have to um, make new DNA to make a new cell to re- to repair that damaged cell. So that's a very important uh, biological process, I would say, is making new DNA. And you need folate. Folate is required to make one of the DNA nucleotides, um, uh, thymidine. So you need that to make it. Um, without it, you do not make it. And what he found is that when you um, have low, very low folate levels, um, actually levels that are very, um, they're equal to what you can find in uh, people that live in the United States that uh, don't eat a very good diet. So a lot of people that are more impoverished, uh, they eat a lot of foods that are processed foods since they're in boxes or packages. So they're not eating greens. Green, dark leafy greens is the major source of folate, spinach, you know, kale, chard, these, these sorts of vegetables are very high in folate. And so this you know, there's a, there's a population of people that don't eat, you know, fresh vegetables. They're eating a lot of processed foods. Well, he found that um, very low folate levels, actually, because you can't make that certain DNA nucleotide that you need, you it actually um, substitutes a nucleotide that's usually made in RNA, not DNA. So it's not... It's not correct. Your, your body's kind of trying to figure out what to do. What do I do? I need to make this, you know, I need this nucleotide to make new DNA. And so it just, it puts in another, um, it puts in some, another nucleotide that's got an RNA called uracil. And what that does, because that's not really the structure of DNA, that's not how it, you know, it's supposed to be. Um, it's very unstable and it causes breaks, DNA single strand breaks in the DNA. Hmm. And he compared those single-strand breaks. Now, single-strand breaks are a form of DNA damage. DNA damage is something that's happening all the time. It's a byproduct of normal metabolism. When you're, when you're oxidizing you know, fatty acids or when you're, you're, you're you know, oxidizing glucose, when you're, when you're metabolizing these, um, these nutrients that you take in from different food sources and you breathe in oxygen in order to make energy, um, that process of making energy also, ha- you know, can ma- makes byproducts that are re- very reactive, the so reactive oxygen species, and they damage DNA, they damage mitochondria, they damage proteins, tissues, they damage everything. Well, anyway, right. right. So there is a full escalation of all kinds of uh, side effects and issues that arise from 
being inadequately uh, nourished uh, in terms of food intake of folate levels, for example. Um, if I understood Bruce Ames' um, uh, theory also, also that it sort of like uh, encapsulates also other other nutrients in a way that the organism, the human being, for example, is is very good at preserving itself in the short term with long-term consequences. Exactly, yeah. So, um, you know, the folate wasn't directly relevant to the triage theory, but he did show that those strand breaks were equivalent to being literally irradiated with x-rays. So it's the same type of damage by not having folate, which really highlights the importance of micronutrients in, in human health. But to speak more specifically to the triage theory, the triage theory is a theory that Bruce came up with about 10 years ago um, that posits our, throughout evolution, throughout human evolution, we as humans have been exposed to periods of food scarcity. And throughout those periods of food scarcity, we also don't get all of our vitamins and minerals because that's where most of vitamins and minerals come from is food. And so he posits that our bodies have evolved a way, a mechanism that allows for vitamins and minerals when they're in short, when they're, when they're not being provided in, in, in abundance, um, to be triaged to certain physiological processes that are necessary for survival short term so that you will live long enough to pass on your genes and, you know, reproduce and pass on your genes. Mm -hmm. But those other processes that are not so important for short term survival right now, but are important for uh, preventing, you know, diseases of age like cancer, Alzheimer's disease, those biological processes are not so important because, you know, it doesn't matter if you live to be 80, 88, you know, 90 years old. You just need to live long enough to pass on your genes. That's what biology cares about. So to, for, for, yeah. as an example of triage, as you mentioned, um, Bruce had published um, a paper showing that vitamin K is a, a good example because vitamin K is a very important um, cofactor for blood clotting. So you need vitamin K in order to, to have coagulation of your blood to make sure that anytime you do have you know, some sort of damage on your blood, but your blood clots and you don't hemorrhage and bleed out and die, which is very possible if you can't clot your blood. So yeah, vitamin K is very important to that. That would um, be unfortunate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be unfortunate, and it certainly would lead to, to an um, early death if you were unable to, mm. to clot blood. However, vitamin K is also very important for activating proteins in the blood vessels that pull uh, – take calcium out of the bloodstream and bring it to your bones. Uh, and that's also very, bring it to your bones and also to your muscle and other tissues that yes. need it. So is it linked to vitamin D also? It is linked to vitamin D also, yes. Um, but this, this, this function, uh, pulling calcium out of the bloodstream, is only really important to prevent calcium from building up in your blood vessels, which can lead to atherosclerosis, it can lead to vascular dementia. You know, these are diseases that don't show up until you're much older. So uh, he showed that there is a triage where vitamin K, when you, when you uh, deplete a human of vitamin K, actually there's no change in their blood clotting proteins. Um, but there is change in the, pro the, the proteins that usually get activated to pull calcium out uh, don't get the vitamin K. Um, so that's been shown in humans, and then there's been several animal studies that have shown um, in nice detail that vitamin K, again, 
when it's when you make an animal deficient in it, it's the blood clotting that gets all the vitamin K and not the other um, proteins that are involved in pulling calcium out of bloodstream. So right on, right on. So, so I mean, you know a lot about these things and how they are intertwined and interlinked. So I, I guess you must have done some dietary changes uh, and you deploy some strategies. I know you're a big fan of smoothies. So, for example, what would be your morning smoothie be like to to uh, mitigate potential risk of getting any of that nasty stuff uh, of uh, being malnourished? Yes, I do. I do try uh, very hard to get a very broad spectrum and large quantity of uh, micronutrients every day and micronutrients in the form of vitamins and minerals I try to get from a lot of you know vegetables and plants um, so I make sure that I have dark leafy greens I like you know I like to make a smoothie um, because I've noticed that I drink I mean that I consume more vegetables if I add a smoothie in addition to the salads and you know, steamed vegetables and things like that that I also eat. But my smoothie, I have a couple of uh, smoothie videos, and I do a variation of them depending on what I have. But I always have some sort of dark leafy green. I like to have chard, um, which is high in vitamin K. Um, I like to have kale, which is, you know, so chard and kale, they're high in folate, vitamin K. They're high in magnesium. Magnesium is another one that's very important for um, triage may apply to. Magnesium is essential to make energy. You actually can't make ATP without, or use ATP without magnesium. So that's something that's essential for short-term survival. But magnesium is also essential for enzymes in your body that are required to repair damage to your DNA and you know get rid of that damage. Uh, without magnesium, that doesn't work. So magnesium is also very, very high in green vegetables. Charred um, kale, and then I like to get my carotenoids. So uh, I like to get the lutein, the azanthin, which are very important for the rods and cones for your eyes so that you yeah. don't get macular degeneration. Actually, lutein is very high in kale as well. So, so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm someone who has higher risk for uh, for, for macular degeneration. So I, I'm also in that camp of having my sea buckthorn and uh, blueberries and, and all that and, and all the green, dark leafy green vegetables. I mean, some people... Especially in the U.S., um, you will notice it when you come to Finland that we are very much into real wild foods like foraging and collecting your own foods and getting getting these nutrients from nature. In the U.S., there is huge focus on supplements, supplement this, supplement that, uh, multivitamins and so on. So what do you think? Do you know? Do we know in science enough yet about all the micro kind of uh, compounds and nutrients that are in foods, let's take a cup of coffee, for example, it has hundreds of different compounds, still some of them unidentified what they do. We have different forms of vitamin C, even an orange, uh, instead of the one form that usually people supplement on. So so, so what's your take on uh, kind of this reductionist approach of taking a supplement? Well, I think you brought up a very important point, and that is that there are literally, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of compounds that are present in you know, a variety of plants and fruits and vegetables that we have yet to even identify a function for. We don't really, you know, we don't really know all these compounds, what they are, what they're doing. Um, but 
as we learn, as, as technology develops and we have more sensitive assays to uh, measure compounds that are, you know, found in, in a variety of plants, uh, we start to learn more and more about them. For example, not too long ago, I think it was back in around 1992, um, a compound was found in, in cruciferous vegetables like kale or broccoli called sulforaphane. Hmm. Well, the precursor to it is actually glucoraphanin, but it gets converted into something called sulforaphane which is a very, very powerful compound that activates this whole genetic system we have called NRF2, uh, which is a very powerful system that activates enzymes involved in detoxifying um, toxic compounds that we're exposed to, for example, from air pollution like benzene, gets rid of benzene. Mm. Uh, it activates all the glutathione genes, uh, anti-inflammatory, so it's a, you know, over 200 genes this pathway is, is changing um, that has to do with detoxification, antioxidants, inflammation. And this is found in, you know, cruciferous vegetables like kale and broccoli, broccoli sprouts, cauliflower, right. cabbage. Yeah. So, what, one know, quick question on that. So to my understanding, the sulforaphane uh, is, uh, is destroyed by heat. So if I, if I, what a lot of people do with kale and cruciferous vegetables is that they steam them or they... They fry them because of their fear oxalates that um, you can basically deactivate by heat. So, so what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, again, you bring up a very good point. So these cruciferous vegetables, um, to make the sulforaphane, so sulforaphane is actually, and I know this is something that we were talking about discussing, um, it's a, what I like to call a plant hormetic compound. Uh, and what that means is, so hormesis in general is, uh, refers to uh, a little bit of stress, something that's a little stressful on an animal or on a human physiology, and uh, not too much stress, but a little bit of stress, just enough to activate all these genetic systems that we have that are involved in dealing with stress. So this, it activates stress response pathways, many of which are antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, um, things like that are clearing away damaged cells like autophagy. So it's activating all these processes. Uh, and w what the net effect ends up being is that even though it was a little bit of stress, a little bit, of, you know, something that's a little bit toxic to, to humans, the response to it is so robust that it, it compensates, overcompensates for the little bit of stress and it ends up having a net positive effect. So sulforaphane so is a perfect example of that because, um, in these cruciferous vegetables like kale or broccoli, uh, it's actually, you don't actually find the sulforaphane. It's, it's, it's found as glucoraphanin. Glucoraphanin is the precursor to it. Now, when the plant becomes, um, when the plant tissue is torn, when it's, you know, chewed or chopped, for example, if an insect comes and lands on the plant and bites it, what happens now is that glucoraphanin comes in contact with an enzyme called myronsinase. Myrosinase then immediately starts to convert glucoraphanin into sulforaphane. And sulforaphane has an effect on insects that uh, it doesn't kill them, but it, it, it basically scares them off. It affects their nervous system. It affects their, you know, they don't have brains, but they do have neurons. They have a nervous system. And it sort of just confuses them. And, and so they, they go away and they don't come back because they remember that plant. Hmm. So it's a defense mechanism. Well, it turns out in humans, you know, it also is slightly toxic, the sulforaphane. Right. So, but, but it's a it's kind of a hormetic stressor. It's so a it's, hormetic it's stressor. Yeah. yeah. But to to sort of answer your question, because I went off on a tangent there about heat, uh, it's actually the enzyme myronsinase that's heat sensitive. So 
you need the myrosinase to be active in order to convert all that precursor that's contained in the plant called glucoraphanin into sulforaphane. Uh, and it is heat sensitive. So when you heat up your broccoli or your kale, uh, you end up inactivating a large amount of that enzyme. And so you're actually not even able to get, you're getting all the other good micronutrients, you know, the, the vitamins mm -hmm. and minerals, but you're not getting as much sulforaphane. So, and there's lots of, you know, it, it goes into great detail. In fact, I, I have a video that I'm going to be releasing, a 45-minute video on sulforaphane. I'm going to be releasing next week, so people can uh, look at, look at, Looking forward to that. So, I mean, which one would you then choose, like risk for uh, kidney stones or, or just like being able to fight off cancer? So it's, it's kind of, I mean, the diet that we eat is kind of paradoxical in the way it works. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I haven't... I've yet to see, you know, there's been clinical studies in humans that were given large, large concentrations of of sulfur, of glucoraphanin and some of these things that are, you know, thought to have this uh, anti-nutrient effect. And there's been no effect on thyroid, no effect on kidney, no effect on liver. Um, they've done animal studies in mice where they're feeding them large quantities. There's, again, no effect on liver or kidneys or, you know, so I, I think that that there's a lot there's important context to consider here maybe if Absolutely. you're something yeah yeah I mean, uh, the human body is full of different pathways and it's still the jury is out there in terms of how different compounds as you get them these hundreds of different compounds from a specific plant how they are co-interacting and yeah, what the yeah. result might be so even if you detect in the ingredients something it doesn't mean that it's gonna uh, end up being absorbed in the wrong type of way right yeah, and I and I also uh, I tend to agree with you with eating eating getting more of your micronutrients and vitamins and minerals from plants and foods from whole foods because you know the the vitamins and minerals are in the right ratios. We have all these other compounds, and um, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for something like a multivitamin. Uh, I do think that it that you know there have been studies showing, particularly in people that have um, poor diets, that they can fill micronutrient gaps and they can actually help. Uh, I do take a, a, a multivitamin just just because uh, it's kind of like insurance for me. I, there's some trace elements, trace, you know, and I found a, a, a high quality one that I like, and so um, I do take that. Uh, but I get most of all my, you know, my nutrients, uh, my vitamins and minerals are coming from from whole foods. I think that's important. Right on, right on. So um, I wanna. Uh also dive into cold and heat and the health effects of that because i come from finland where sauna and ice swimming is a big thing but before that i want to uh, go back to folate and i know that you've done done some research and, and and studying closely also genetics and how that plays a role in in human nutrition and folate seems to be the one that's brought up in nutrigenomics often as an example because of the way how it influences mth uh uh, afar or, or something like this and, uh, and, and the, the fact that some people should not take folate uh, in, in the folic acid form but in an in activated um, form uh, because of some genetic issues so what can you tell us about methylation um, well so I did mention the one I mentioned the, the pathway involved in making new DNA that's very important for folate um, the other important pathway for, that folate plays a role in is um, precursors for methyl groups. And these methyl groups are used for epigenetic pur purposes, which basically means they're, uh, they're changing how much a gene is activated or deactivated without actually changing the sequence of DNA, but instead by putting this 
um, methyl group, which is, you know, just sort of this structure. Uh, it's a carbon with three hydrogens attached to it, and it sits on top of a, a, a DNA region, and it prevents other proteins that come and sit on top of the DNA to activate it. So it can, in many cases, it's methylation is involved in turning a gene off. Um, so folate plays a very important role in that process. And as you mentioned, um, this concept of nutrigenomics, which is the interaction between our genes and our, our diet um, and what we're, you know, what we're getting from our diet, different micronutrients, macronutrients, things like that. And one of the classic examples of um, nutrigenomics is the MTHFR. So um, humans are all different. We have different versions of genes. These are called polymorphisms. Um, or single nucleotide polymorphisms in some cases where it's just one nucleotide being changed. And uh, it changes the, when you have, you know, one nucleotide being changed in a gene, it can change the function of the gene. And about almost half of the population, uh, at least in the United States, um, they have a version of the MTHFR gene, which is involved in producing those methyl groups from folate, so that it can be used for a variety of epigenetic, you know, reasons. Uh, they are, they're not able to do it as well. About 10% of the population has a version of it that's so bad that it's almost like the enzyme isn't doing anything. So it's like really, really bad. And that's um, in about 10% of the population. Uh, so the, there is a bypass for this, and that is actually um, taking an active form of folate, like you mentioned, called methylfolate, um, L5-methylfolate, actually. And so basically it's bypassing. Usually what this, this enzyme does is it, it um, converts, you know, a precursor into 5-methylfolate. And because that enzyme can't do it, convert the precursor into 5-methylfolate very well, uh, taking the 5-methylfolate exogenously, so taking a supplement, can bypass that, and then you can then have the 5-methylfolate to be used for epigenetics. So, right, right. Um, so, so in people who have diff, uh, kind of a malfunctioning uh, methylation, uh, they see a rise in inflammatory markers like homocysteine. Uh, exactly. And uh, so if you want to bring that down, you have that elevated, you may want to check your methylation and uh, genetics on that. Um, what other kind of examples... Uh, comes to your mind in terms of nutrigenomics that has immediate uh, application that we can use today? Vitamin D. I think that's one of the really, really major um, ones that there are very common gene polymorphisms in an enzyme called CYP2R1, which is, so vitamin D actually is, it's a hormone. It's a steroid hormone. It gets, you know, it's not actually, we call it a vitamin, but it's, um, it's actually a hormone. It's so important that we make it from the sun we, in our skin. We make vitamin D3 when we're exposed to UVB radiation from the sun. Um, and then that vitamin D3 gets released into the bloodstream and it gets converted into something called 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And then the 25-hydroxyvitamin D gets converted into the active steroid hormone, which is 1,25-hydroxyvitamin D. So... This enzyme I'm talking about, the CYP2R1, converts the 25-hydroxyvitamin D into the, um, no, actually, it converts, sorry, it converts the vitamin D3 into the 25-hydroxyvitamin D. So people have a version of this enzyme that does not uh, function well. And so they actually, uh, for example, if they're taking a vitamin D supplement, uh, they will not 
convert as much of that D3 into the active vitamin D steroid hormone, which is what's doing all the function uh, very well. And so people, uh, for example, that are that are taking 2,000 IU or 4,000 IU of vitamin D, or I guess in Finland you probably measure it in micrograms, you know, um, yeah. they, may be, they may think they're getting enough vitamin D, but if they actually get their blood levels measured, they'll find that their blood levels of 25 hydroxy vitamin D, which is what is measured, it's the stable form, are much lower than they probably anticipated. Uh, and so I actually know several people with this gene polymorphism, and they have to supplement with a much higher dose of vitamin D3 than they otherwise would. Um, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also one of those people, so I have to take a lot more like 10,000 IU to get even the serum levels to, to where they need to be. And uh, nothing beats like real sun exposure. And uh, uh, fortunately, I, I don't have methylation problems. But uh, yeah, I mean, those are the two things: vitamin D absorption and uh, or conversion to useful form. And the other one is just like, uh, I mean, most of the people in the world, the, the biggest nutrition deficiency is iron, uh, iron deficiency. And uh, I don't have problems with that, actually. It actually, uh, my ferritin levels can rise so easy because of, of genetic issues. So, so I have to take a look at those things. So I often advise people when they start on supplementing things like vitamin D or they start supplementing or whatever, iron uh, or folate or, or, or magnesium to, to check their existing levels if they uh, and, and genetics perhaps as well to, to combine those both to be able to adjust the right dosage. Um, so so uh, how important yeah. do you see testing um, in general? I think it's critical. I mean, I, I think that getting a blood test to look at your vitamin D levels, you know, looking at your ferritin, your, you know, your all, all these um you know, these, these micronutrients and also other biomarkers are, are important way of quantifying changes that we're making in our in our lifestyle, you know, and right. because not everyone knows, not everyone's measured your gene poly, their gene polymorphisms, which you can do with certain companies, uh, at the very least get a blood test because, you know, you will, you will, there will be a red flag that goes off if you, if you're taking a vitamin D supplement and your levels are still deficient. I mean, that's sort of a red flag that you may have one of those gene polymorphisms. Right. Um, yeah. So I think it's extremely important to do. And for for me, I've um, for the vitamin D, I like to have my blood levels between 40 and 60 nanograms per mil, which I think in Finland would be, you guys measure um, nanomoles per liter, I think, which would yeah. multiply what I just said by 2.5. <laughs> mm. That would be, uh, you know, 100... 100 to 150 or something or something like that nanomoles per liter so yeah yeah which according to national recommendations is too high and uh, i mean the minimum that they're looking at is pretty much like on a population study level what would be the level where we don't see population-wide issues uh, arising so an optimal level as optimal serum level for you doesn't necessarily mean uh, when it comes from these population studies and uh, national averages that it's it's optimal. It, it can be optimal for a national level to avoid a common issue, but not necessarily for good health. Mm, so for the, the coming to this conclusion for 40 to 60 nanograms per mil, um, I've looked at around, let's see, 33 different clinical studies that have been done from 1960s all the way to 2013 or 14 
uh, looking at all-cause mortality and vitamin D, serum vitamin D levels. So all-cause mortality means they, people that die from cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, you know, respiratory disease, all these diseases that people die from. And 40 to 60 nanograms per mil was associated in 33 different studies, you know, uh, with the lowest all-cause mortality. So um, that's sort of where I figured that's a sweet spot for the vitamin D, you know. Um, and also, again, people, we talked about this CYP2R1 gene polymorphism where people can't convert D, vitamin D3 into 25-hydroxy vitamin D very well. Those people with that gene polymorphism actually have a higher all-cause mortality so they, than people without it. Just right. kind of an interesting way of looking, and they have lower serum vitamin D levels. So they have lower serum vitamin D levels, uh, and they have a higher all-cause mortality. So right on. So 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 let's touch a little bit more on longevity. And I mean, in Finland, here in the north, uh, today was the first snow that came. I'm I'm super excited. I'm also excited winter because of the cold exposure that I can have on all the heat stress that I can accumulate in. In going to the sauna every day, I'm actually like doing that like yesterday and probably going to do it tonight as well. So heat stress, uh, also a hormetic stressor, just like mm-hmm. some some food nutrients can be, I mean, mild toxins, but at the same time, they are making our immune systems better. So, so what can you tell us about heat and its effect on longevity and uh, especially cold? Well, um, I... I do this, so I kind of want to start maybe with. Um, yeah, it's a complicated. The, the back, if we go back to my longevity worm study, you remember when I first started studying mm-hmm. aging? So that the heat, the heat goes back to that because um, back when I was was studying these little worms, we would heat shock them. Uh, you know, we'd expose them to a very brief burst of heat um, and and see how that affects their lifespan and. So, so, so you had like little warm saunas they would yeah, come in and saunas. throw a little water on the stones and enjoy themselves. And... Yeah, well, not quite that much, but it was kind of like a little warm sauna where you just kind of expose them to like a 15-minute, you know, heat shock. Uh, and and this is this has been done by several different um, lab laboratories. Um, in fact, it's been you know published by another laboratory, not the one I was in, but we were doing it to repeat the experiment and to look at other things and. Uh, what we found was that heat shocking these worms just for a, a very short, you know, brief, it was 15 or 30 minutes. I don't remember. It was so long ago. But it extended their lifespan by like 20%, 15 or 20%, which isn't quite as robust as the IGF-1, but still just one single exposure to heat, you know. So I've always in the back of my mind, you know, connected the the heat exposure to longevity just from my early, you know, exposure to the literature on on heat stress and how it was able to increase longevity in these lower organisms like worms and also flies has been shown the same thing. So I've sort of always been in the back of my head, you know, how there's there's some there's some mechanisms and uh, a lot of those mechanisms were shown to be dependent on activation of a pathway called um, heat shock, uh, the heat shock response, um, which activates heat shock proteins. Hmm. Um, heat shock proteins are Um, uh, they're proteins that are doing a lot of things, but uh, one of their main functions is to make sure that a protein has its proper three-dimensional shape and structure so that it's able to do its function um, when it's supposed to function, and also so that it doesn't, after it does its function, it is degraded normally and it doesn't stick around 
with an abnormal structure where it can then aggregate with other proteins. So heat shock proteins play a very important role in preventing protein aggregation. And protein aggregation plays a role in a variety of age-related diseases. Um, it plays a role in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease. It plays a role in um, atherosclerosis, and, uh, sclerosis and cardiovascular disease. Hmm. So proteins will aggregate in your blood vessels and you know, you can start to have um, all sorts of nasty stuff just sort of lining the blood vessels, forming a big aggregated, you know, um, plaque. So heat shock proteins are one of the interesting hormetic stress response pathways that are activated when, when uh, animals and when humans are exposed to heat. Humans also, when they're exposed to heat, activate this heat shock response. Hmm. Um, but... You know, I think probably one of the most convincing studies. So these studies, there have been studies done on on worms, flies, and even mice, where you heat shock them, and you can uh, improve the way they age. You can extend their long their lifespan by a you know fifteen percent or so. But there was a study that was published, I believe it was in two thousand and fifteen, and it was a study that came out of Finland, the University of Eastern Finland, and the study uh, looked at all-cause mortality, so dying from cardiovascular-related diseases, cancer, all, all, you know, all sorts of diseases, and sauna use, mm. sauna frequency of sauna use. And uh, what the study found was, so it looked at men that use the sauna either once a week, men that use the sauna two to three times a week, or men that use the sauna four to seven times a week. So it's kind of like a, a range of using the sauna, like a dose response in, 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 a, in a sense where um, there, you know, some men are using it more frequently and some are only using it one time, one time um, uh, a week. And what the study found was that men that use the sauna two to three times a week had a 24% lower all-cause mortality than men that used it one time a week. So they actually died, you know, they were 24% less likely to die of all these different diseases during the time frame that was studied. Right. Um, yeah, men that used yeah. one. And then... There, there is so many benefits of that. Also, the increase of white blood, uh, white blood cells yes. when you when you go to sauna as a kind of a hormetic stressor, so reduce the risk for common flu. Also, the way how it shuts down inflammation. I just heard a pretty interesting story I want to share with you. Is uh, I was in the Finnish sauna society with uh, one of the top personal trainers of Finland called Tommy Kokko, and he he told he, he used to go to this um, and still goes to this place where there is smoke sauna. And uh, there's there's this one guy who's always there, and and he would be in 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 the ice water, and uh, basically there would be ice, and he would dig himself a hole, and uh, Tommy would go to sauna and outside and swimming and sauna. He would do this like three times, and the guy is still there in the ice cold water. So he was like thinking of calling an ambulance because that guy looked like hypothermic, and he was just like lying in the in the ice water and and then he struck a conversation with that guy when he came out of there he explained that he's basically getting himself to controlled hypothermia um, intentionally because that's the only moment when his osteoarthritis uh, symptoms go away and and the pain goes away and uh, much better than any medication so so he does that treatment to himself every day like going to 20 to 30 minutes to ice cold water to control hypothermia uh, he looks like dying, but he's kind of like he knows what he's doing, and he's just like lying there in the water. So, uh, what would you say about the kind of immediate kind of effects of just like getting into the ice cold water? Into the ice cold water, yeah, that's that's uh, a little different. That's a different type of stress, but one of the most 
irrefutable pieces of evidence that I've seen in the scientific literature uh, is that cold exposure immediately increases norepinephrine, uh, which is um, it's a neurotransmitter, but it's also a hormone. So norepinephrine, the reason it increases norepinephrine is because norepinephrine causes uh, vasoconstriction. So when you're cold, you actually are trying to conserve heat. And the one way you conserve heat is by uh, vasoconstriction. But uh, in addition to that, it has norepinephrine when it's in the bloodstream. It's an anti-inflammatory. It actually inhibits um, a variety of inflammation pathways, TNF-alpha, uh, NF-kappa B. So it, it is a very potent anti-inflammatory. Um, you know, so it, it, it has its role in inflammation. It also affects um, immune cell function, uh, white blood cell number, and, and, um, and it also affects mitochondria. So it's, it's playing a role in um, causing your mitochondria to um, uncouple. So it plays a role in, in uncoupling mitochondria, which means the mitochondria uh, are no longer coupling oxygen to um, make energy, and they kind of freak out. And as a, as a response to that, it's sort of like a hormetic stressor they start to um, become very active and try to make more and more energy to generate heat. Uh, but then what ends up happening is it also um, causes you to make more mitochondria when this pathway gets activated because your, your, your body's like freaking out because it's trying, to, it's trying to warm you up. So uh, it ends up having this net positive effect of where now you start to make more mitochondria. Which so are, so you, will have better, uh, you, have, you will have more energy like uh, You will have more energy. Uh-huh. And then... The norepinephrine in the brain also gets activated, and that plays a very important role in um, in in uh, making you focus and you know, focus and attention are better. Uh, it's also an antidepressant, so it makes you feel good. Um, and as you mentioned, in pain, there's it's not quite understood all the crosstalk, but it it plays a role in somehow um, in in alleviating you know some of the pain pathways, and you know so it's it's very interesting how it's sort of having all this pleiotropic effects where it's affecting so many different physiological processes. Right. Uh, what, like what can you tell about the genetic side? Uh, I remember you raving a lot about a uh, gene called FOXO3 that's linked to this. Yeah, FOXO3. So that's uh, going back to the heat, um, heat stress, you know, and I, and I, was, I was talking about the study out of Eastern Finland, um, you, you know, the, the all-cause mortality was even lower, it was 40% lower in people in men that used it four to seven times a week. A lot of that mortality was actually related to cardiovascular mortality. They were less likely to die from a heart attack, heart disease, coronary artery disease. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the fact that um, heat stress mimics cardiovascular exercise to some degree. And it, it, you know, your heart rate elevates. I mean, anyone that's sat in a sauna knows that you, it almost feels like you're doing an aerobic workout, you know. So uh, that there's a lot of uh, similar effects that are right. activated. Um, so, uh, anyways, that's you know that's that's just the the cardiovascular side. The other thing, and this has sort of not been proven so much uh, as me sort of connecting the dots, uh, and that is that heat stress, because it is a hormetic stressor, um, it has been shown to actually activate the longevity pathway called FOXO3, uh, and this FOXO3 pathway is um, it's actually a very important stress response pathway that activates, you know, many, many different genes that are involved in dealing with stress and antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, um, stem cell production, 
just clearing away, you know, uh, damaged cells through autophagy, it's just very, very good pathway. And in fact, humans that have a gene polymorphism in their FOXO3 gene that um, makes it active all the time, makes it more active, they're 2.7 times more likely to live to be 100 years old, so a centenarian. Um, and if you look in animal studies, if you, for example, in mice, if you activate FOXO3 all the time, uh, the mice can live up to 50% longer. Uh, and also this, this worm study that I first talked about when we started the podcast, part of the reason, actually the reason why the worms lived 100% longer was because getting rid of that insulin growth factor pathway, um, it activated FOXO3 all the time. And so if you got rid of the FOXO3 also, that lifespan extension was gone. So it re required that FOXO3 pathway, which worms actually have a version of one of the, it's a little different, but it's the, it's the, it's the same gene, essentially. Um, so. just, a, just a quick question. So there's studies that show that uh, cold exposure, for example, after exercise, uh, blunts uh, growth. Uh, I mean, if you want to, Put some muscle or, or increase strength doing cold exposure right after exercise is not necessarily good is it also linked to this uh, reduction of igf1 or uh, or increase foxo3 when uh, when you're kind of uh, or is it just like shutting down the inflammation and damage uh, well actually both so it is so doing uh, cold exposure like an ice bath immediately like within one hour um, after doing strength training, resistance training types of exercises can blunt the uh, hypertrophy, so muscle growth that is experienced from doing the strength training. And that uh, has been shown to be to some degree dependent on uh, stopping inflammation, which is important for activating the IGF-1 in muscle cells. So it's kind of both IGF-1 and the inflammation because the inflammation that you generate from you know doing engaging in physical exercise from strength training is very important it's the, it's the hormetic effect right exercise is also a hormetic stressor uh, much like heat and cold um, and so if you you know when you exercise you're actually you're actually increasing inflammation and that increase in inflammation is essential to have the response the anti-inflammatory response to the inflammation uh, that's very even it's even more powerful it's more robust so, um, or and, and also that inflammation is important to activate the IGF-1 in muscle. So yeah. without it, if you're blunting it too quickly, you're not going to have that very important response. So it's, it's, it's important to keep in mind that, uh, at least in the context of strength training, that it's been shown um, if you do it one hour, so if you wait one hour, after one hour, the, the inflammatory response has already reached its peak, and now you're already in the anti-inflammatory response mode. You're already having that stress response, that hormetic stress response to the inflammation. Hmm. I think this is, you know, this is what I'm saying. I've seen studies that have waited an hour, and it doesn't have that same effect. Uh, there, we still need more empirical evidence to actually prove that, but it is my belief um, that waiting at least one hour after strength training um, to do cold exposure mm. would be more beneficial right. than right. now. Aerobic exercise has been a little different. It hasn't really mm. been. In fact, it's been shown to improve endurance uh, if doing it immediately after mm. endurance. So. Yeah. So, so there might be a benefit of doing cold exposure if you want to be recovering faster from a strenuous exercise. Yeah. And, and you need to do second round the next day. Now, heat, uh, like sauna after strength tra strength training, compared to like stretching. Actually, you don't need to stretch after strength training. Um, 
uh, to reduce muscle pain. Uh, you, you just go to sauna, enjoy yourself, and, and that often seems to be more effective than uh, doing all the stretching and using your time on that. And on the top of that, with heat shock proteins and that, that activation, you get some longevity benefits health benefits of that as well so very cool uh thank you so much dr ronda patrick on this advice i think we're coming close to our end of our interview um but if you would um pick up from your research on heat and nutrition a few kind of like main takeaways that people should do more research on on their own which ones would you pick so so what what should they go and look for and and where where should they go and find that information well, I think that um, the vitamin D is a very important one, and um, getting your vitamin D levels measured is important. I have a, a video out there called the Vitamin D Sweet Spot, which is a very short video talking about the role of vitamin D in longevity and um, what I think, what I have, um, in my opinion, I have identified to be the important blood levels of vitamin D, the range to be within. Um, also, we talked about nutrigenomics. Uh, I also put out a video on that, and I have a free nutrigenomics tool that can be found on my website, um, foundmyfitness.com, where uh, you can learn about a variety of different gene polymorphisms that affect vitamin D, that affect folate, that affect um, vitamin A, vitamin B, um, that affect omega-3 fatty acids, the way your body's converting them. Um, also, that affects fat metabolism, um, how, you, how you metabolize uh, fatty acids. Uh, so, so that video is on my website. It's um, the nutrigenomics video, and also there's a free tool. If you if you've done a 23andMe genetic test, uh, then you can uh, run it through my website, and it'll it'll give you some information on some of the genes that I've identified. Um, I have some more uh, genes I'll be putting out, more reports I'll be putting out soon. Mm. So I think that's another important take home. Um, and then the sauna. I know the sauna is really big in in Finland. Uh, I think some of the the really important take-homes with yeah. the sauna. We, yeah, um, we, we have more saunas than people, and every Finnish person <laughs> is a sauna expert, by the way. <laughs> well, we didn't actually get into the effects on the brain, which is what I'm going to be talking a lot. I'm going to be talking a lot about uh, the sauna at the, the Biohacker uh, Summit yeah. uh, coming up soon. And um, it actually was one of the most important things that uh, got me interested in the sauna in graduate school was the effects on the brain. So it, it has a very profound effect on... Uh, the way your brain responds to endorphins, which makes you then feel good even days after the sauna. So that's something that's very interesting. But the stuff that we talked about today, the heat shock response, heat shock proteins, the FOXO3, the effects on the cardiovascular system. Um, I have a video on that that's called the sauna longevity, uh, the effects of the sauna on longevity. I also have a free report you can find. Um, so if you're, if you're someone that likes to read, you can download those free reports on my website. I also have one on cold shock. Um, I put out a podcast on it, an audio-only podcast, um, which can be found on iTunes, um, Stitcher. It's called Found My Fitness. Uh, but I also have a free report on on 20 pages, and it's on cold shock, and it's how the the many effects of cold shock on on uh, inflammation, on the brain, on um, mo- making new mitochondria, mitochondrial biogenesis, on metabolism. So um, that can also be found on mm. my website, but. Yeah, that's a, uh, it, it's a very cool article. I will link all of these into the show notes. And uh, uh, I mean, foundmyfitness.com would be the yep. address. And uh, also found my fitness on uh, iTunes and uh, YouTube channels. So check it out. 
Dr. Rhonda Patrick has a wealth of information you definitely want to dive deeper into that we can't cover in this in this podcast episode. So thank you so much, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, for your time and also for coming over to Finland and link up with all the crazy people who do the sauna and uh, cold exposure every day and uh, uh, in the pursuit to live longer. Unfortunately, our region is not in the blue zones. I guess it's because of the lack of sunshine and lack of diversity in food. But at least we um, mitigate a little bit of the damage by just like getting ourselves out there into the nature and um, and, and, and getting our little uh, uh, worm kind of uh, genes activated. Um for longevity so uh very cool thank you so much for your time my pleasure and thank you so much for having me and i'm very excited to come to finland and uh and experience the uh, saunas and, and ice, ice lake or ice cold shock after so I yeah look forward. absolutely uh so so everyone out there so have a healthy week and uh, stay upgraded thank you very much my name is Teemu Arana. check biohackersummit.com for more on the conference uh Dr. Ronda Patrick is going to be there. Cool. All right. Over and out. Bye.